Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. And welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and today I'm joined by a wonderful guest from outside of Melbourne, but still in Victoria, from Ballarat. Tess, welcome, Tess. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to have you on um, and to talk about your story today. But first of all, do you mind telling us a little bit more about you? What What were you like growing up? What are your interests? So. I'm Tess and I'm married to my husband, Sam. We're kind of childhood sweethearts. We've known each other for a long, long time. Um, We've been with other people, but we've been friends for a long time. We've got two young children. And what what was I like growing up? Really out there, pretty confident, social, um, and I'm still like that now. (laughs) Um, I was a dance teacher (laughs) pre-COVID. And uh, we have a dance school. We've got a couple of businesses. I worked in retail. So just love being out and about and around people. And that's me in a nutshell. That's amazing. And you're doing all of that while being a mum. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, not working at the moment. And our dance classes have, we've just culled those for the rest of the year because of COVID, like just the stopping and starting. But I was doing it um, before I had my second child as well. Wow. That's so incredible. And it's so hard because you sometimes don't think about the long-term aspects of, of problems with COVID. Like it's not even just the jobs, but it's an ability to even attend the classes and Mm -hmm. like the exhaustion that people are having from going back to work and then having to deal with taking their kids to things after work. Like these are things that are going to be barriers for quite a while while we get back to normal. 100%. And I've definitely lost all of my fitness when it comes to teaching, let alone exercising, but to talk and and dance, no way. I'm going to have to build that back up. 100%. I feel exactly the same. I was just saying to my boss today, we're having a chat about how we feel. And I was like, this is the, you know, the last six months of the pandemic are the only time I wasn't actually going to work. So I haven't been, you know, getting up early, walking to the station, getting on the train, you know, like the commute to work I'm not doing, but I'm also not doing a lot of those other activities that I was as well. So even outside of exercise, 
I've been very inactive in a lot of ways. So I've even just found walking up a flight of stairs like a little bit more difficult. <laughs> I um, pushed my one-year-old around on a little trike and I was like, oh gosh, I need to, that's enough. Like I can't do anything anymore. It's really bad. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think we need to just, I hate this saying, I, I try not to be fluffy, but like I need to be, we need to be a bit kinder to ourselves. You know, I've, I've put on a bit of weight. I'm not feeling the best in my body. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people have lost yes. fitness or their <sighs> bodies have changed. I think it's even just that day-to-day movement that you've stopped doing and it's okay. It's not the end of the world. It's not no. going to define any part. We can still have fun and get healthier yes. at the same time. Yes, yes. I'm in the same boat. Totally feel you on that one. And just stretchy pants. I mean, it's yes. <laughs> All there is to do in lockdown is eat. I mean, yeah. I know. If and it's in Victoria, emotional... it's freezing. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I so it's outside. not emotional eating. You're stress eating or bored eating. There's so many mm-hmm. different types of eating that you can do. <laughs> <laughs> tick, tick, tick. Yeah. Someone was saying the other day that they um, lose their appetite when they're stressed, which a lot of people do. But I was like, I never lose my appetite. Like I wish. <laughs> That's never. I can't think of a time where I've lost my appetite, honestly. Yeah, not unless I'm really sick have I ever, mm-hmm. you know, lost my appetite. But, yeah, no, I completely agree. When I get stressed, I eat or mm-hmm. Like I have to have something to touch or to move or to do. I've always been like that. Yeah, same. (laughs) But you are here to tell us your story today as well, Tess. So do you mind telling us like where you were in your life when this, when this happened? Sure. So today I'm going to speak about um, growing up amongst domestic violence. So it wasn't just one time in my life. There's the one time I'm going to speak about is probably the worst time and the longest stretch the longest partner my mum had. Um, But there were many, many, many times. So from when I was three, like my earliest memories, right up until I was 17, 18 and moved out of home to get away from it. So, but the specific time I'm going to talk about today is from about 11 to 17 or 18. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So my mum was married to someone. She's been in and out of relationships um, my whole life. She was really, really young mum. So she had me when she was 17, fell pregnant at 16. And my dad was quite young too. And it's just been a long um, cycle of bad relationships and um, a lot of domestic violence. And what was that um, like? Like, obviously, like it started from birth even. So was that relationship with your parents, um, did that break down quite early? Yeah, so it was pretty, from what I've heard, pretty volatile. Like they were so young when they met, like 14 and 15, I believe. Um, And my father actually committed suicide when he was 21. So I was three years old and I also have a younger brother. He was one at the time. So they were broken up. Things went good. There was a lot of fighting and him trying to take us and find, you know, we'd have to hide um, because he was, on drugs or whatnot. So yeah, right from the very beginning, all of my earliest memories have been quite, it's been kind of normal, unfortunately, that kind of behavior. Yeah. And living in that stress. And I'm so sorry to hear that, that he took his own life as well. That's so tragic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for anybody to feel that taking their own life is, is the only option is, is a horrible thing. Even if they're doing horrible things, we don't want anybody to ever be to feel like that. So I am sorry for you and your family as well to have had to go through that. Thank you. So after 
he um, has left the family unit, I guess. And, and you're going through this, this situation of now is it your mum is, is dating again and then bringing people into your life that are not particularly happy bringing people to your life. Yeah. Yep. So she, um, it's always been quite soon after, like there's not really many memories of there being big gaps in between relationships. So I think that, um, you know, when it comes to mental health too, there's lots of factors, lots of mental health issues in my family. I think that being alone is something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and especially my mom and she was so young and had been through a huge trauma. I mean, two young kids and then your boyfriend takes his life. Like, at, you know, she would have been 19 or 20 at the time. Like it's just devastating. But, um, yeah, moved on to a new partner quite soon after that and he was um, violent. He was in and out of jail. And it's interesting, actually, I was reflecting today and I have been a lot lately since starting my own podcast. This second partner, he was um, really unsafe with me and there's things that I can remember now and I've said to my husband, like, I never really thought about it until now that that's so like I I would be laying on a bed in the morning. We'd all go wake them up in the morning and he would, when mum would leave the room, he would just run his hand up and down my body in the centre and I would just kind of freeze and I never, I never thought anything of it. I never I would never say I'd been sexually abused or assaulted or molested or anything like that. And then now that I'm almost 30, I'm like, that is so unsafe. It happened multiple times and I'm, you know, glad that it didn't go any further than that with him. Um, But, yeah, I'm reflecting a lot and I feel like I've blocked out a lot of memories and they're kind of popping up more and more now the older that I get. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a miss. Um, a misnomer almost that people have with abuse victims as well or with things like this. I mean, if you're in a traumatic environment anyway, this might not be the most traumatic thing that happened to you that day. And Mm -hmm. I think also on top of that, we don't always remember things through the eyes. Like we're looking back on events in our life through the oldest eyes we've ever had. You know what I mean? Like we're the Mm -hmm. oldest we've ever been at this moment. And if we're looking back on our lives in that time, it's easy to look back on it as an adult, but as a child experiencing those things, you don't know that they're wrong because mm-hmm. you've never, you know, mummy and daddy or somebody family member has always, you know, been there to help dry you off when you get out of the shower and things like mm-hmm. that. So sometimes you don't know your boundaries at that age, but it it is interesting. I think having these memories and, and going back and revisiting those through older eyes and more mature eyes and seeing actually there was stuff that was going wrong. And it does explain a lot of the circumstances maybe and how you're feeling now with what was going on around you. 100%. You're right. And I think having my own children has really um, magnified and amplified that for me even more. I just think, gosh, I would be devastated if those things had ha- uh, were happening, are happening to my children. I mean, They've never witnessed anything close to, uh, I mean, even an argument between my husband and I. So the things that I saw at their age, I just can't, I can't even believe it now that I'm older. Absolutely. And it was even um, interesting, even in the case of, I hate even naming him, Michael Jackson, one Mm -hmm. of his victims ended up coming forward 
properly and telling the full story about what had happened to him when once he had a child that was at the age that he was when he was abused. And Mm -hmm. it was seeing the vulnerability of his own son, I guess, at that age that made him realise how bad what had happened to him was. And it took that long, like 30 years, for him to come to terms with that. And I thought that was just so insightful, I guess, into being a parent as well. Like not only are you going through this journey of being a parent, but like you're looking at a kid this age and how much comparison happens to you go, well, when I was a kid and you do those reflections. Yes. Yeah. I I saw that um, documentary that you're speaking of too, because I used to be a huge Michael Jackson fan and, you know, he was well, not exonerated, but he was not not guilty. And um, after I watched that, I was like, he's absolutely guilty. Absolutely, my goodness. Yeah, like these poor, poor people. Awful. And I think, yeah, it always comes for, I always just say, I believe all survivors um, until otherwise <laughs> proven. But yeah, I, there's, there's a lot that I'm happy to have chats with people on that have different opinions to me. I, I could never date, I'm single. And I, could, I tell you right now, I could never date somebody who thought that Michael Jackson wasn't guilty. I'm just so, I can't. <laughs> yes. And, and some people need to separate their love for his music and then he's a, a human who has done some awful things, you know, because that doesn't mean that a song isn't good. He, he It's awful. It's so terrible. So, so Both terrible. of those things can be true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, yeah, it's just an interesting insight that I think a lot of parents come to by recognizing their own trauma, by seeing their children. And, and it's, it's funny almost like, and I've spoken about this with a lot of survivors who are parents, like, how much more kinder you become to yourself when you're in that moment because you realize how fucked it was. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm really having a lot of those moments now. And, you know, speaking about my own story, it's, you know, made some people uncomfortable. And so many people that were around me at the time just had no idea. It's, yeah, it's so, so interesting. So family members of yours that weren't your direct family or? Yeah, uh, pretty much. I think I had a best friend. The only reason she knew about some of the things that were happening was because I would be at her house a lot and um, there were some phone calls and she had a little bit of an idea, but still nowhere near to the degree of what was happening. And then a few weeks ago, I released an episode about this topic. Um, So many of my friends messaged me and they're like, I had no idea. And, you know, our extended family, no, I absolutely no idea. And they're like, you know, we can see you're only scratching the surface and sort of just keeping it PG and listener friendly. But um, I it's it's make made me feel really sad because I'm like I was so young and vulnerable, and then I was going to school and acting like everything was great and that I was fine, and because I didn't know any different, I didn't I knew it wasn't normal, but there's nothing I could do about it. Yeah, it's so wonderful I guess as well how resilient kids can be um Mm -hmm. if you have to look at any side of that that is a positive yeah I'm I'm, I am sorry that you've had to go through that and it is hard to hear that the people around you didn't know but Mm -hmm. also I guess maybe if anything that is a little bit more comforting that they didn't because I mean if they if they did and they hadn't intervened or if they did and they'd done nothing about it that would be shocking. And maybe the piece here as well is about education in, in looking for what what these signs are. And I now I think about it, I think, what could they have done? Because back then, this main person that my mum was with for a long time that was really extremely violent and um, really scary and not just violent with her, he um, was violent with our neighbours, with us children, like just awful. I don't know what... Um, 
the people around us could have really done. Like, I just really don't know. He was friends with a lot of police officers. There was a time that I called triple zero because my mum called me crying and screaming and saying he's going to kill me. And so I was like, well, I'll call the police. And um, I called the police and I just, I called the police station, the local police station, which was, now looking back, that was a stupid idea. I should have called triple zero, you know, perspective. Anyway, um, it happened to be someone that he knew that answered and he was like, oh, he wouldn't do that. I'll give him a call and he's mobile. And my friend will vouch for me. We've told this story a million times. But I'm like, you would ne- like of all the people to get that phone call. And I was begging him, like, please don't, you know, please don't tell him that I called. Like I, my mum was even angry at me that I'd called the police and I denied it because she they were just she was scared. He was angry. Um, I think they sent a car and she survived, obviously. But um, you know, th- just that example, even when I called law enforcement, it was almost like they didn't believe me and he was friends with him. I felt like there was just no one that could really help. There was no way it was ever going to end or get better. In this cycle of violence and there's no way out. So I guess you've kind of touched on it already, but your mum's gone from this like initial relationship with this man when when you were about three um, and then there's been subsequent relationships that weren't that great since. Mm -hmm. When, When did this one fall into the situation for you? So, yeah, probably when I was in grade six, so I think around 11 or 12, I remember I was starting high school and um, I had a history of not liking any of my mum's partners. And I think I did, I think by then I was like, oh, he's nice enough. He had um, lots of children and things always moved fast with my mum. So we ended up moving out. Of, we were in emergency housing after my dad had passed. We let go of that house. It was a good house for, you know, a young single mum. And we all moved into a three-bedroom house with one bathroom. There was eight of us all up, two adults and six kids. And um, I guess it really started with he had his kids. It was always his kids and her kids, and they were getting parented this way, and they get away with this, and your kids are messy and mine aren't. And it was just this constant back and forth about whose kids were worse, I guess. And then I I really, look, it's a bit blurry um, the first time he was ever violent, but I think it was just like the the confidence was building where he would maybe slap her in front of all of us at the kitchen table. And that was, we would all sort of be in shock and then he would just play it off like it was fine. Everyone had to act like it was fine. And then it it got progressively worse. So, I mean, it was over, I want to say like six years or more, but um, it started right before they got married. She still married him. And then after they got married, it got really, really bad. Yeah, I think all of us living in this tiny house too just did not make things any easier. Um, He was a bit older than my mum. I think that he had a lot of control in that way. She, like I said, she was um, fragile and I don't know, an easy easy victim is not a good way to describe it. She was vulnerable. She was um, really seeking love and affection and attention and she had three kids had nothing for herself so and you know we'd given up all of our furniture and our you know our half of everything and condensed it all into one house so every time things got bad and he would kick us out or we would want to leave we we had nothing nowhere to go and nothing to take so I think that a big factor too she didn't have a job you you know they're combining funds they're things that I can see now but at the time I was like why are we why are we here? Why are we living yeah. like this? Like this is awful. And I, why I can't felt like we just leave. 
yeah and now I can really see um it's just not that simple there's so many reasons why but um just the practical reasons like there was nowhere for it felt like in my mind there was nowhere for us to go I didn't even know about shelters and things like that back then yeah it was awful and you know we might have left to my my grandparents house for one or two nights but it was never long term he always came after us he always wanted us to come back and I think was he controlling the finances as well was he the main breadwinner or controlling them yes yeah yeah so um he was in and out of work um but yeah my mum she's probably had a handful of jobs because prior to that she'd left school when she was 14 or 15 and then had me so she'd never worked and um, she didn't get a license until she had her third child. So it's um, she just didn't have much experience. So I think that she always was happy to hand over that role to whoever she was with, especially her husband, I guess. And it was his house that we moved into. It just felt like, um, yeah, he was in control of everything, yeah. every aspect of all of our lives. And I think that's that bit where you go back and we've learned so much about things like coercive control now and these behaviours that are created by by people who perpetrate crimes like this to mm-hmm. create power and control dynamics. So, you know, exactly like you said, you know, she's a vulnerable person with children. Um, she doesn't have a steady income herself. So it means that, that financial aspect as well is another barrier to her getting a place for you guys to go and stay long-term. And then mm-hmm. it's just that that cycle, I guess, of, you know, somebody the build-up and the build-up and the build-up of the tension, then something happens, physical or violent, and then there's a period of cooling off, say if you go to your grandparents for two days, and then he comes back and apologises or says things will change or or could do a million and one things. And you can see from the outside looking in, it's so hard to see how a mother who's being hurt and how when her children are being hurt how she could go back to that. But I guess with the more knowledge that we've got now, I think we've got a little bit more empathy in that space as well for the reasons and the barriers that she must have been feeling too at that stage. 100%. Yeah, I have so much more empathy now, I just think, if I was in that situation. Yeah, it's, it's easy to say what you would do if you weren't or have never been in that situation before. Absolutely. I don't know if um, you or any of the listeners have seen the um, series Made on Netflix. It's just recently come out. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I saw the trailer and I was like, this is, uh, I'm going to have to sit down properly and watch this. Mm. It's it just incredible. I, I think it could not have come at a better time. It's um, it's actually more about emotional abuse, but it's even that makes it even better because um, this was a physically abusive relationship, and a lot of my mum's relationships were. But the emotional abuse is just as bad, you know. Um, and it really highlights that. It shows like a, a mum and how hard it is for her to work her way through the system to get any kind of funding, to get any kind of help, and um, how sometimes it is easier just to go back and stay. And but then you're putting your children at risk. When you do that, it just, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. It's based on a true story. So the best representation I've seen of that kind of situation in a really long time. And I think it goes back to, as well, somebody like Rosie Batty, who we all know in Australia as a survivor of domestic abuse, but her partner murdered her son, Luke Batty, um, in a very public way. And then Rosie kind of became the face of domestic abuse in Australia at that time. Um, because she courageously spoke out against what was happening. And she was asked so many times in the media, why did you go back? Why didn't you leave? All of those things. And she so 
so concisely said, and she's a very well-educated woman, I think. So hearing it from somebody who we don't have painted in our minds as a typical victim, she said she knew that he was abusive towards her and she knew all of those things, but she never once thought that he would hurt their son. Like she didn't assess the risk in that situation to be against him. She always thought it was against her. And I thought that was a really poignant point because you don't always understand the risk I think that you're in when you're in it. You have no idea, you know, you can look through glasses, you know, from a distance, especially if you're into true crime like I am, and you can look through things from a lens and say, oh, look at all of the warning signs. This was brewing for months. But it's it's really difficult to know where the risk is, I think, when you're in the situation and you're not being helped by anybody. I completely agree with that. And um, I think even recently my mum was like, well, not how would it, how did it even affect you guys? But because she was the one being mostly physically abused, she's not, you know, of course I'm sure she's like, oh, yeah, I wish my kids didn't see that. She's not seeing outside of her own little bubble, which is completely fair enough. She's got so much going on herself, but how that could possibly affect her children who grew up witnessing that kind of behaviour. Um, this person that we're talking about, he would really prey on my brother because he had three sons. So I feel like my brother really stood out like a sore thumb because he was other. He was not his boy. And so he would get more and more comfortable with, you know, pushing, shoving, punching a wall right in front of his face. Like it did really affect all of us in different ways and we all have our own stories. But my mum didn't even really see any of that. Or she she just thought he was disciplining my brother or doing what a dad does because she's never really had We've never had a dad to do those things. So I guess she was so frightened of him um, and she was the one copying it mostly that I don't think she could even see how that would affect all of us. And she's still, I think she's still a little bit confused by that, which is hard. Definitely. And um, I think it's so important for survivors as well, like your mum, to be able to unpack that because understanding that is so difficult. But I guess mm-hmm. um, a lot of people refer to children in domestic abuse situations as the forgotten victims because they often are. And there are numerous studies that even say, you know, children between the ages of zero and four, they're the key times that your brain is growing at such a rapid pace. So if you're around hyper vigilance, if you're having to be hyper vigilant as a child and around violence like that as well, it really can impact your brain's development in those earlier years. And I think that's an important thing to note to note as well. It's not just the physical outside, but it's the developmental things that it can cause within children mm-hmm. who are in high stress, high awful environments, you know, and I think there was a study that came out not long ago about women in domestic abuse situations who have high accounts of IBS. Your body's in a fight or flight kind of, you know, situation where your organs aren't getting maybe the blood that they need and they're not functioning properly. And I think it's a good representation of how stress and everything on our bodies can actually have an impact on the way that we function. I think that's also important, but just calling out that children are often the forgotten victims in a domestic abuse situation and and they're sometimes the most impacted by it. So it's important that we bring 
kids in family violence into the discussion. 100%. And like you said, like the first four or five years, that's the formative years in a child's life and and not just for their brain development, but, but for their self-esteem. That's when they build their um, attachment to their parents. And if it's constantly changing or like you said, it's fight or flight, I didn't know that obviously when I was four and five and now I have a four and a half year old and I'm like, I don't think he's ever been in fight or flight. You know, I don't think he's ever been that terrified or he's never witnessed anything like that. And that's going to change the trajectory of his life from where I was at when I was his age. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the uh, childhood ACEs, it's adverse childhood experiences, the study that they did on children that I found that so profound. I only heard about that maybe a year ago, but I think it's like 11, there's 11 ACEs. And if you've had five out of the 11, you have more chance of having heart disease, depression, um, asthma. Like there's so many physical effects. And um, I was telling my husband and I was like, this is mind blowing. Like I'm, I'm, I got 11 out of 11 <laughs> and I was like, oh I'm gosh. susceptible to all of these things. Oh, no. um, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And I'm so glad that things like that exist because you're right. Like they, we are the forgotten victims because it's like a secondary abuse. I don't really know a better word for that, but um, you are still getting emotionally abused and you, you are copying it, even if you're not the one that's being shoved into the wall or physically punched or, you know, those kinds of things. You're the ripple effect and, yeah. you know, that happens with all, all situations like this, I think, as well. So you said that it, it developed over time, like it got worse over time. And I'm, I want to pull back to like something you just said before as well, that he would punch in front of your brother. And I think that's an important red flag to call out because, you know, off, I've been, a few of my friends have spoken to me before and said that their partner had like punched a wall in front of them or like slammed something massively or smashed something at their feet. To me, that is a huge red flag because that's you're doing that in order to create fear in a person. You're not doing that because you're upset. If you were, you could go punch something over the other side. But the fact that you're doing it near the person, your goal, I guess, out of doing that, in my opinion, is to intimidate them physically. And I agree. When you're in that moment and you're escalating and you're escalating, it's not far from that to go from the punch in front of the face to a punch to the face. And I think that that's important to call to call out. And is that what, like, I guess you saw with the escalation, it started like that and then it just progressed further? Yep. Yep. And you're right. Um, they could punch something on the other side of the room, but they want they want you to feel the same fear as if you're about to be punched. So um, I just, you just reminded me of something that my husband and I barely ever argue, but when we do, if he is frustrated and he swears accidentally, I'm like, whoa, like I, it's like a, an overreaction almost. I'm like, you're taking it to a new level. Like you've, you've taken it too far. And he's like, what? Like, He's like, you know, we're just having like a, a kind of heated discussion, but I'm like, as soon as swear words start getting thrown around or then it goes to names and then, you know, I, in my mind, it's just going to escalate and go so much further. It never, ever would or has, but um, he's like, we're just having a discussion. I'm like, look, we can't swear because I just feel like, you know, easily could be taken to a new level and I don't want it to go there. But um, sorry, that was just a bit of a tangent, but no, um, but it's a good point. I think as well. And it kind of probably does speak to your personal experience as well. If that's been a situation that you've had previous, you know, where you can see things going down a very slippery slope once they meet a certain point, you know, of course mm -hmm. it makes sense. You're trying to mitigate it from getting to that point. 
And in my mind, I'm like, if you're comfortable to swear in our argument, it's, I feel like I'm like subliminally giving him permission to, to go as far as he wants or he can get as angry as he wants. If I'm, if I'm cool with this, then maybe he's not even thinking like that. But unfortunately, that's just where my mind goes. But, yeah, um, yeah so this stepdad, um, he would just sort of, do little things, like I said, like a slap or a punch. Um, he got progressively worse towards my brother. And um, I don't know, he would do little things like if he, oh, my brother didn't want to wear his spray jacket at school and so he'd always put it in his bag or he'd find things to um, pick on him for. So he'd be like, oh, you left the spray jacket at school and then he'd just be on him and on him as if he'd done something terrible or, you know, then one week it would be, you don't put your washing in the washing basket. And my mum was away for the weekend and um, I was like, put your washing in the washing basket. Like you're going to get in so much trouble. Mum's not here. It's like he almost has free reign and he can do whatever he wants and mum's not going to see. And he actually, I I saw him put his washing in the washing basket and then the stepdad grabbed the washing, put it back in the bag when we went looking and then he's like, Tess, come and have a look. Like you think your brother's so perfect. Look, he doesn't even I ask, what is it? It's a simple task. I've asked him to put his washing in the washing basket and then it just escalated. So that was the time where he punched the wall and my brother was in year seven, maybe like he was so terrified. This man was huge, a huge presence, really, really physically able, very, very scary. Um, and it was just awful. And I, I don't know if that sounds as scary as what it was but I was right there but I couldn't do anything there's there's no way I if he did punch my brother there's nothing I could have done to stop that and and if I did try and stop it it would always have been 10 times worse um I mean one day he assaulted our next door neighbor she was a, a female she probably was in her 40s I think she was a little bit mentally unwell but they were having some sort of argument, my mom and him and her, about the cats and the the fence and just, you know, trivial things. Um, yeah. And things. one day, yeah, she came over screaming about something and she didn't know who she was messing with, I guess. Like she, I don't think she would come and knocking on our door. I was just, we were all just terrified. And um, he just, once he was angry and he was in that zone, there's no stopping him. There's no reasoning. There's, if he's getting physical you just have to ride it out basically so he we're on the front lawn in broad daylight he just pulverizing her like this poor woman and uh, his son tried to grab his arm he's like dad stop elbowed his son and kept going and everyone could see and no one said anything no one she went off in the back of a divvy van and they were like she's she's thrown this at her house she's crazy it was self-defense like played it off he got away with it um everyone was just terrified of him but his own son he said later like don't ever try and stop me when I'm basically when I'm in the zone like when I'm doing something don't ever try and stop me because you're just going to get hurt it was terrifying I'm like it's not just in the in the four walls of our home it's the confidence to do it anywhere to anyone. It doesn't matter who it is. Um, That was really scary. To have the confidence as well to blatantly lie to the police, to have the confidence to lie like that to the police and for him to be believed as well. Like I think it's just a cycle, you know, he's getting more emboldened, acting with impunity and all that's showing you in your life is that the police aren't there to save me because they can't and he's in charge he's going to get away with no matter 
what happens with everything that he does. Like it's a very big message and, you know, I think it's a testament though to perpetrators, testament's probably the wrong (laughs) word, that some people can be so manipulative, like a a psychopath, not everyone's a psychopath, but somebody Mm -hmm. like that to be able to put on that charm and go from this highly volatile situation where he's beating the shit out of somebody Mm-hmm. to a, a situation where he's, oh, no, uh, she came to my house, she was the one, she did the wrong, and be able to convince them that that was the case as a man who's beaten oh. up a woman. like I, I try and tell people this all the time. I'm like, I, and I say it in the episode on my podcast, but he was so awful, so there's many, many stories I could tell about him, but he he too was so charming, so likeable, um, Everyone that met him loved him and he could just work a room. And, you know, like I I called him dad after a while. I kind of felt like I had to, but there were times where I felt so cared for and safe because I was like, this man can take on anyone. The police aren't even like, you know, he can even take on the police or he's friends with the police. But it's so confusing because he's so nice and he's so awful. Like it's um, so I can only imagine how my mom felt she's in love with this person. And um they hurt you and then an hour later everyone's we're all eating dinner at the table and it and it's fine it's so so confusing and I really struggled with that more and more in the end and um, he did not like that because I wasn't able to I tried really hard because I didn't want to get in trouble but I really wasn't able to be happy and act like things were fine even a week after it had happened but not straight afterwards so he would really call me out and say in front of you know our huge family condensed family you know Tess has a problem what's your problem test you want to tell everyone why you're not speaking tonight and I was like no, I'm fine he's like no you're, you obviously don't want to be a part of this family and you got a problem with anything that's happened tonight like I, I don't even really know how to describe that but for me that was real emotional abuse and really manipulating me and just making me feel so other and kind of making me feel crazy like am I upset about the same like did I see the same thing that everybody else saw an hour ago because I'm like devastated and traumatized and you know we all just have to act like it's fine otherwise it's not safe i was reading a book on basically coercive control i don't know if you've read this i'm sure most australians have but uh see what you made me do by jess hill um i haven't but i want to i couldn't recommend another book more it's the most incredible eye-opening book but it in the beginning she makes this really wonderful connection she wasn't the one who made the connection but she just phrases it really well she just goes how am I going to get men to care about domestic abuse (laughs) yeah how Mm -hmm. am I going to make bring this you know found this connection that was made through research from a man who had overlaid the power and control dynamics of um, prisoners of war in camps and then overlaid all of those traits with domestic abuse and they were basically identical and it was really interesting I mean even just listening to your story it's like the gaslighting the monopolization of perception like am I actually seeing this as correct or you know and then some of the things that he's done by the washing and things like that like enforcing these trivial demands and Mm -hmm. acting with impunity and I think it's important as well the fact that how you feel is important. And I think that's often overlooked. It's, it's not, it's always looked at how they acted, not how you feel. And I think that's an important distinction to make, but the fact that you even said, I felt crazy. Am I making this up? It's that gaslighting that you're, am I not seeing the same thing that everybody else is, but he's saying it to you in a threatening way, but it sounds kind, but you Mm -hmm. know that if you were to say, 
yes, I do have a problem with this. Thank you very much. That 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 would cause drama. That would be, yeah. you know, something could happen but, then. And that felt like that's not an, even an option. So the only option is to agree. But I, I think when you're describing and t- t- telling me what I just said, like that's exactly why I then didn't go to school and say, this is what's happening at home because I was like, well, no, even, no one at home even thinks it's it's out of sorts. Like I already feel like I, I, I overreact almost or I'm having too much of a reaction to this and I need to kind of play it cool and sleep it under the rug. So, of course, I'm not going to go and tell other people because it's like my own household. Like they believe me, but we're not, we're not going to talk about it. I say in my podcast episode too, like I said to one of his sons after a really bad night, um, we were both drying the dishes and I whispered to him, I was like, God, your, your dad hits my mum a lot. And he's like, yeah, sometimes she does deserve it. Yeah. And I, I, back then I was like, I don't even know what to say to that. And now I'm like, gosh, like what, what constitutes deserving it? Like, that's what I was told from his son. And I'm like, his son thinks that he truly thinks that my mom deserves it and that that's okay. Like, I don't know the history with their mom and this man, but I'm sure she had moved to another state and, didn't have full custody like who knows um it's really sad and scary like it's already kind of drummed into his head that that's okay and she deserves it you know sometimes she deserves it it's all it's terrible but um yeah that happened so I really was like wow okay this is okay and so she deserves it yeah I don't know yeah and I think that's you know you could imagine you know I'm trying to put myself in those shoes and imagine that situation you know you're living in fear something's not quite right. You're kind of questioning whether you're sane or not. Are are you having a normal reaction? And then you've got this reinforcement as well happening, not only just from that conversation, but from the people around you not reacting to, like you just know Mm -hmm. that this is how I have to act and it's just the way that it is. Yeah, it's. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Like, there would be times where they would be fighting and he's like, all of you, pack your shit, get out. And I would be, like, shaking, packing my stuff. And I was like, if he hears me packing, I'm, I'm toast. Like, he's going to be so angry that I'm packing, but he also wants us to pack and leave. So I don't know if that makes sense to listeners, but it was, like, so confusing I just always felt so on edge and confused and uh, that's really translated now into my adult life where I'm such a people pleaser um way more than what I thought I was and a couple of months ago I was like I don't care what anybody thinks but it's not really about their opinion of me it's that I will just I will just say what people want me to hear because I I must be deep down and afraid of what their reaction is going to be because I don't know what it's going to be and I will just keep the peace and and choose the easy option and and not change plans. I just want to make things easier for everyone just so things go smoothly and I don't want to be the one that disrupts everybody and is the the issue. And I think that that has um, stemmed from my upbringing, especially in that household. Definitely. I think it's also a testament to you, know, though, as well, though, to say even you, you were speaking before about the swearing in your relationship, like if your partner was to to cross that line kind of thing, you know, you're very quick to pull that in. I think that's also a testament to you in that situation to say, okay, I actually have developed some boundaries and they might come from a place where I have different experience, but I've also, I'm enforcing some of my own boundaries here and I don't want you to cross them. And I think that's also a wonderful thing that shows how much growth you've done after leaving this. And we also hope that the the sons that were in that situation who who did have those views have potentially been able to unlearn them and learn new ways to think as well. Yes, especially once they have their own families and partners. And yeah, I, I hope so too. How long were you were you in this house for? Were they married for a long time? Yeah, basically I would say all of high school or until I was um, about 16 or 17 and kind of working and I had a boyfriend and that relationship would have could have been very similar to a lot of my like I could have definitely gone down the same path that could be a whole other episode but um at the time I was like he was my lifeline like just being able to be at his house and I don't know if my stepdad really liked that but yeah so it was a long time but once I got into my teen years I was able there were more opportunities for me to leave I was working I was at school and then I was dancing after school every night so there was just very limited amount of time that I would actually be in the house and they did break up and get back together and once I was more adult he really flipped the switch on to to me like he just did not like me at all and um would say things to mum like you have to choose between me and Tess it's me or Tess if I'd if I'd come home or he'd just swear at me when I'd walk in the door and tell me to leave um but then he would call me and say if if I didn't come home that night for my boyfriends that he'd come in and drag me out or he'd call the police like it was just this very confusing like he doesn't want me to be home doesn't want me to be a part of the family the the family that's back together again you know (laughs) after finally leaving, but then would tell me he's going to come and drag me out of my boyfriend's ass. It was just so, just the control. I think it was just the control. And I, I don't think he liked once I was getting older that I, he couldn't control me really. Um, and so part of me, it's kind of sick, but I feel like I didn't like that I had a boyfriend. Like he was quite, again, now that I'm older, I'm like, he was, I'm so lucky that nothing ever really happened um but you know every time I was in the shower he would come in and go oh sorry I thought thought it was one of the boys I mean 
nine times out of 10 showers, he would he'd come in and pretend to be looking for something in the drawers. Or We only had the one bathroom mm-hmm. um, and I'd just sort of hide in the corner. So, like, he's not, I don't know. I mean, I would always be like, it wasn't that bad, it's fine. But now I'm like, you know, that's really weird, really weird. And, um, you know, there was a time where I thought I wanted to do a modelling competition <laughs> and he was all for it. He's like, yep, yeah, you should do it. He had this big camera, really fancy camera, um, I'll take some pictures for this competition for you. And um, at first they were fine and my mum was there and then my mum had to go and pick up one of my siblings and then I ended up topless um, with just my hands covering my boobs. And he's like, well, this is what models do. So, um, and he also said to me, like, well, you'll need to do some sit-ups and kind of lose that little bit of your tummy. And they were very, very um, sexual is not right, but not appropriate. And, yeah, I mean, I just still stick to my stomach even thinking about it. So I don't know. It felt to me now that I look back kind of like grooming, like um, I feel really quite lucky that nothing eventuated from that because I feel like it's so unsafe. Like saying nothing eventuated, like obviously what you've gone through is horrific and those incidents in and of themselves are very distressing and not okay. But, I mean, I think are you trying to say like you're ha- you're glad that nothing sexually went further? Than- yeah, because I would not have been able to, the, yeah. There's never anything you can do if you're a victim, but I couldn't ever say no to anything. Like the, the pictures, I you, you just go along with it because that's fine. It's so inappropriate. It's so, so inappropriate. Um, yeah. And he would still have those pictures on his laptop and it makes me feel sick to think about. But um, I feel like if there was anything sexual that had happened, I would have been totally I would have frozen anyway but um he was so physically overpowering and powerful I just feel really grateful that it didn't get to that because yeah yeah it's hard as well and it just validating that for you as well like all those feelings are completely valid and you know it's 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 okay to obviously be grateful that nothing further happened but also acknowledge that it was shit you know I think these things about coming in in the shower and stuff as well. I mean, I wonder about the motives of that and whether it was sexual or as well. Like, is this the power and control thing coming through kind of somebody saying it doesn't matter where you are, I am here, I have a Mm -hmm. presence here, um, Mm -hmm. and you're vulnerable in this situation. I'm going to let you know that I'm around in this moment as well. So, you know, I think when we think about offenders as well, it's, it's important to discuss potentially what their motives are, but just validating I think as well from you that while some of these things seem minor I don't think they are I think that they're very regardless of whether it is a sexual motive or a control motive both of those things are not okay you're vulnerable in your situation as who you are as a young woman and it is it's it's frightening and it does you know the same thing with your boyfriend at the time you know you wonder is that is it control or is it possession or is it something that's really nefarious that's going on in his mind there? Well, and there also were, I mean, you know, to no disrespect to my mum, but, you know, that's been a really hard relationship my entire life. And there were times where she would be arguing with him and be like, well, you, you like Tess more than me or you're more attracted to her than me. And I was this, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old girl. I was like, what on earth? Like, why are they even saying that? Um, yeah. So I guess I never piece it all together but I think now and there's things I've learned that I probably won't say on here but I do I'm yeah I feel like I was 
not far away from being really, really taken advantage of and um, not having a choice. And I, I just feel like those things, I don't think that they were happening to my fr- in my friendship circle, you know. I don't think my friends, I hope my friends' dads weren't doing that or their stepdads. I mean, they might have been, but not from what I'm aware of. And it's yeah. not okay and not normal. And I think it's good. I'm glad that you did say the word grooming as well because it is, and it doesn't just have to be a very young child. You know, adults can be groomed too. And that might be Mm -hmm. grooming your mum into feeling insecure about you. That might be Mm -hmm. manipulating situations. That might be giving people this false sense that that they're a really nice guy. You know, there's, um, God, I always talk about him. I need to get an endorsement from him, but... (laughs) Jim Clementi is a former FBI profiler and he often speaks about this. And I remember listening to a podcast he did about Jerry Sandusky, who was an offender in the States. And I think he'd done, he'd adopted heaps of kids. He'd fostered heaps of kids. He'd done so much for the community. And he made this great distinction. In the eyes of somebody, you can still be a great, nice guy and be a sexual offender. And I think that's important through your eyes. This man is abusive and this man is awful and difficult, but also through the eyes of the public, it sounds like he's this really great outgoing, funny lad dude who's mates with everybody. Even that guy Mm -hmm. can still be an offender though. And that's also important to talk about. Yeah. And I think again, now that I'm getting older, I'm like, it's kind of scary because I look around and I think anyone here, that could be capable of any of those things. And I think, yeah, if you think that just because somebody's nice and kind, like we all can are capable of that and lots of people are capable of awful, terrible things too. So it's kind of scary. Yeah. It's also like, you know, the, the ones who are really good at it, the ones who really want to do it, they're going to do it really well, you know, and even the most, I don't know, savvy detectives or, criminal profilers or fucking, you know, AFP, you know, the Australian Mm -hmm. Federal Police, like it it would be able to pull the wool over their eyes as well. A masterful offender is a masterful offender. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to look at everything at a whole when you're only seeing a small picture. And I think grooming is scary because in my eyes, it's sort of seeing what you can get away with and seeing, yeah, just seeing what the response is and what you can get away with and how far you can push it. It's terrifying. Yeah, testing those boundaries. And I think, um, yeah, you're exactly right. And grooming is something we all need to learn more about to protect the children in our lives. My sister just had her first baby. I became an auntie for the first time. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Being Um, an auntie is the best. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I met him for the first time last week and I'm just you know, I'm already so protective. I just love him so much. But I did read, I've started to reread a book as well. And I know it's early. I'll reread it again. I I did give it to my sister and I felt like maybe she was not happy that I gave it to her, but some people don't have the same background, I guess, that I do um, or interest in this. But I guess it's it's this really wonderful book by Joelle Castiex called The Well-Armored Child. It's, It's really wonderful about grooming in a sense that it can give the power to children. So, if you have these open conversations with your kids, first of all, then they're going to be less likely to be a target because they're less likely to be manipulated by an adult, mm-hmm. but also it's giving them the language to be able to say to you that something happened. Cause you know, with that testing boundaries thing, for example, it might be, Oh, you know, we can go and drink alcohol or let's have this secret from your mom. Don't tell your mom. Or if you do tell your mom, you're going to get in lots of trouble. So it's kind of for parents about how to navigate that space and to make sure that they know no matter what, 
they can tell you what happened. Even if something has happened, you might be able to stop it from happening. But you can mm-hmm. also arm them, I guess, in a way without sexualizing sex. And I think that's why I liked it because I think it's just like you don't want to talk about sex with your kids. No. But it's talking about these boundaries and saying, you know, this little triangle over this parts of your body, they're only to be touched by, you know, mummy or daddy, doctor if you need to. And it, it, it talks about it in a way that, I don't know, I find it really powerful and interesting as well. And it, it, it wasn't hopeless, I guess, at the end of the book. It felt very hopeful, which often I, when I need to read this, this because I really actually, good. I think about this all the time with my son in particular, because he's very vocal and able to speak. And I'm like to my husband, we need to, we need to start saying things to him about, you know, only you know, no one touches his body and his private parts and all of these things. And he's like, no, we don't. Like he's never experienced anything like that. So he's like, no, 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 we don't need to say that. We need to say something. And I've started saying bits and pieces, but I'm almost afraid to have that conversation, but I'm also terrified of it happening. Like you said, like, I don't want to talk to him about sex, but I want him to be confident and the boss of his body. And I, yeah, I think I need to read that. I need the language, the right language. Yeah, I'll send you the link. It's really powerful. But I think as well, that's the thing. It goes back to these these nice guy offenders as well. If if he was to come home and say, the coach at school told me to keep this secret, you know, what kind of an adult tells a child to keep a secret from their parent? Like that's inappropriate behavior in and of itself. So he might have the language to even raise red flags that are maybe not seen as red flags to other kids. Maybe the kids are just not think about it at all or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I really, I think I struggle with when to bring it up, you know, just out of nowhere or yeah, I think that that's what I struggle with the most and and not scaring him, but just give arming him with that knowledge and the right language. Because that's the thing as well. You don't want to be like predators are everywhere. (laughs) Suspect everyone. (laughs) Because I'm like that with everything. And I watch way too many crime documentaries and stuff. And I'm like terrified I'm going to be abducted and, you know, (laughs) living in a basement for the rest of my life. So, (laughs) and I really am terrified of that. My husband's like, you're crazy. And like, there would be people in our town that have probably been abducted. And, you know, he's like, you watch too much, but. I think it's just being aware of the situation around us, you know, even when it comes to trafficking, it's Mm. happening around us. It's happening everywhere. It's when you're into true crime, I guess, if you are as well, it's it's a situation thing where, where you're very aware of the situation and how bad it can go. And I think as women as well, we're all aware, none of us wanted or expected to become victims in any sense of the fashion. So we're hypervigilant in that sense. I've been told by people, am I overreacting by changing sides of the road when a man's walking behind me and things like that. And it's like, but what no, if I got overreacting? Yeah. But what if I got it wrong? Do you know what I mean? If, if I'm right yeah. and I've just put myself out of danger, go me. If I've yes. got it wrong, then I get attacked. Like <laughs> I don't care if yeah. I'm a bit hypervigilant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I, even broad daylight. Like if I used to walk from like the office to my car in broad daylight and I was like, I'm always looking at what people are wearing and like thinking of a description or I notice number plates. Like it's really. Do you do that uh, as well? <laughs> yes. And then people think I'm insane. I'm like, anything is possible, guys. You know, I, I've got long I, hair. Yeah. You know how they say long hair, you're more of a victim. They can. Pull, I don't know. Yeah. I could go on and on and on. 
Same. I walked past a lady the other day and she looked a bit suspicious. And I just still remember, I was just like, okay, she's got like a longish nose that points down a little bit. She had a small bob that was like darkish brown, but was going gray on top. She was wearing a, a light gray singlet. The car yep. was gold. <laughs> I just, you know, honestly, a police officer would be like, I think, you know, a little too much. Like, this almost doesn't sound right. Like who notices that much? I just want to be the perfect eyewitness. If that, yes. something ever happens. I want to be the person that gives the good description, you know? Yeah, I don't want I've to- been watching a YouTube channel and it's all about um, the interrogation room. And I wrote to my brother, I'm like, I'm basically a detective now. I know all the t- like the t- tricks in the book. I know how to get people to make a confession. Sign me up. Yeah, I think I've thought about that as well. But honestly, the idea of being interrogated in a room, I, I would just, I don't know. Crumble. <laughs> Crumble. <laughs> I but would. I think- yeah, but it goes back to even that situation. Like we're talking about this, you know, and, and we can laugh about certain things as well. We obviously have a vested interest in talking about these topics and stuff. It's really important. But, you know, even thinking about that interrogation room and what it would feel, I can't even, I have no idea, but I would find that terrifying. But when you said before, like, I don't know how to explain how how terrifying he this man was in your life and how he stood over you and how physically threatening that presence was, like, I think just picture for people listening yourselves, if you've never been in that situation, picturing somebody imposing themselves over the top of you and screaming at the top of their lungs near you, like for anybody that would be overwhelming and scary. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you, especially if you're like backed into a corner or something like that as well, where you don't have the opportunity to move, like that's terrifying. You're so right. Yeah, it just made it. And, you know, you, they don't, the perpetrator doesn't even have to be a big, muscly, physically huge person for them to be really scary and intimidating. But it just, it, it felt worse. It felt like it made it worse because he was, felt like he could just snap anyone in half. Like he just was this huge guy, especially when we were younger too. It just felt like he was yeah, the Hulk or something. I don't know. Just so, and like I said earlier, there were times where I felt, so safe because if I was in trouble, I was like, oh, if anyone breaks into the house, they're toast. Like this, I can sleep soundly at night. That's great. Cause now I wake up every night and I think someone's breaking into the house. Someone's going to take my kids. Someone's breaking into my car. Like, and my brother and I, it's interesting. We both do that frequently. And my husband sleeps soundly like a baby, not a worry in the world. And I was like, I'm always on high alert and it sucks. Um, (laughs) You know, even when my kids are sleeping, I'm worrying any little noise. I think something bad's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it, it, it absolutely sucks. And that these are the ripple effects as well that family violence has. What was it like then leaving? So when she eventually left, you said she, she tried to leave before. Did she finally leave with you on, on her second attempt or? I I think it might've been, um, maybe a third or fourth attempt, but I think I, it's interesting because I have a really good memory. And then I was saying to my brother the other day, like, what was the the straw that broke the camel's back? Like, how did we actually leave? But I think that they, he really didn't want to be with her anymore. And so she found, had to then go look for a rental. And I think he gave her the opportunity to, it was, we're moving out, we're packing and you're going to move to this rental. So he was, I don't want to say nice, but it wasn't like he was, threatening that we weren't allowed to leave or anything like that so I think we were able to find this rental 
move out. And then I think within a couple of weeks, he was um, dropping casseroles and very easily got back with my mum. And um, she actually said to me a few weeks ago that when he first started dropping the meals and being so, so nice, um, she was like, I thought he was trying to poison me or kill me with food because I'd left. Um, And I think he had a heart attack. He was quite, he was older than my mum. Um, and my mum was a young mum, like I said earlier. I think he had a heart attack or something. And um, I think that was sort of the got them back together. I think she felt like she'd almost lost him. And so they stayed living apart, but they got back together for maybe six months. And that's when I was sort of speaking about earlier when he really started being awful to me. And I had the boyfriend and he was, yeah, awful to my boyfriend. And I, I don't actually remember how it finally fizzled out between those two because I just wasn't ever there. I honestly tried to never, ever be home. And that had a ripple effect on my relationship with my mom from, you know, 18 to even now, like we've sort of just started working on our relationship now that I have young children, but I just had a lot of resentment because I was like, she was effectively choosing her love life and her boyfriends and this guy over us. And it felt like over us and our safety, but I know now that it's more complex than that, but I just couldn't wrap my head around how, how a mother could do that, how she could do that to me and how she could let him speak to me like that. But really she didn't have much of a voice in that. You know, she was terrified. Yeah. I think it's, it's awesome to hear the empathy that you've got there, but also acknowledging that it did hurt you and it has been hugely effective on you because both of, like we said before, two things can be true at the same time. You know, she could still have been doing her best um, Mm -hmm. and she still could have tremendously failed and loving you at the same time. Like it doesn't all have to be mutually exclusive. And I think that's, you know, it's okay to have that. Um, And I commend you for trying to work on it and be honest about that. I think that's really great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been hard, really hard. But um, I want my kids to have a totally different life and path. And I think that I want to give her the opportunity to have a great relationship with my kids, if that's possible. And um, yeah. she's not with anybody at the moment, and she's really trying really hard. So, yeah, it's, it's that's been really nice. Great. That's to great have to a hear. Positive. Hmm. So, what's it been like? I mean, we've touched on it a lot. You know what life's been like for you for you afterwards, but what what has it been like, I guess, following up from that when it was finally over um, and he was no longer in your life? Because you said that, that that was the period just before it finished was the worst part for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was that that last bit and leaving like? After they were breaking up, I wasn't around much anymore. I also was having my own kind of my first love um, proper relationship with someone that was a little bit older than me and um, – he was into drugs and would get really angry and I was felt found myself kind of going down a similar path and he did he broke up with me you know all of those things my first big heartbreak and I think uh, luckily after then I've never been in that situation for myself I've never been in that situation again I've never been in a position where I'm I'm physically scared uh, that something's going to happen I've never been around that kind of violence again especially within the household or relationship so yeah it was it's such a delicate time you know between 16 and 18 yeah but um I'm I'm quite grateful that sort of from 18 onwards I was able to kind of kind of end that cycle and then now start healing, I guess, from there and start, I'm moving on with my own life. I really wanted to just start my own separate life and 
work and get my own place and just have things that were for me and that were my own that no one could take away from me or control that were all just for me and be around safe people, safe adults um, and my friends, their families, their parents, you know, what what was normal, like the normal household. I really loved just sleepovers, immersing myself in other people's families and um, the place that I worked in, in town, it was a local surf shop and that was a family-run business. And um, they just felt like my family. It was just, yeah, I think that that's what's helped me kind of emerge from this somewhat yeah. mentally sound, just the people I surrounded myself with after that. That's so wonderful. And I think that's so important for other people to hear as well, like just being there for somebody. Um, you don't have to go above and beyond a lot of times. You just have to be kind and empathetic and helpful. You know, I'm sure a lot of these people didn't, you know, go to the ends of the earth to create situations for you, but just by being themselves and allowing you into their family and showing you what love was in a, in a different way has made a huge impact. Yeah. And they didn't even know really. They, and they're, they're the people now that are like, I didn't even know it was that bad, or I didn't even re- understand that that's what was happening. Like I thought things went great at home, but I was like, you have no idea what um, you've done for me. Like I've, I've found myself thanking my friends and really appreciating their parents, like the sacrifice they made without even, I'm sure they had an inkling, but um, you know, having another yeah. child in your house every weekend months on end um it's a huge sacrifice and I'm so so lucky that I had that because I don't know who I would be I think I would be a completely different person if I didn't have that because it's hard when you don't have that support at home and that foundation definitely but I also think that you know even just speaking to you and seeing what you've done with your own podcast I think you're an absolute force to be reckoned with and I think you would have come out on this side of the fence being a wonderful empathetic and loving person regardless your your tenacity and your ability to make something um, from the situation you've been in. I think obviously they've helped, but I think you've got to give yourself a little bit of talk yourself up a bit. I think you're pretty fucking incredible. <laughs> I think regardless, Thank you. <laughs> you would have Thank you. you've been fighting for yourself tooth and nail. It's been really wonderful having you on and, and I want to say thank you for sharing your story and being so candid. I guess I, um, I've been having a lot of conversations with some of my friends that work in uh, maybe not so much childcare but kindergartens and schools and I was approached a couple of times by teachers and they would ask me certain things and I guess just people always say to me, you would never know that you'd been through X, Y or Z. And you know, I, I never even really give everything away I never say the full story and I think if you ever have an I don't know I don't even know how you're how you approach a child at school and how you can help them because I'm not a teacher I'm not in the education system but I think don't underestimate your power to help somebody and even if it's like you said being kind hanging out with them being offering support or being a good friend those things are so much bigger than what you think they are. And I've tried, you know, with my own dance students and without, you know, crossing boundaries and crossing the line, but just always offering an ear and creating a safe space um, for kids, you know, if they, I don't know which kids are going home to a volatile household, but I hope that 
they would feel safe to chat to my husband or I, or they feel happy and safe when they're in our care in a dance class or um, even our staff at work. My husband has some businesses and he has like 50 staff and I'm always like, you know, make sure that they, if someone speaks to this person, you know, you need to make sure they feel really safe and supported by you. And he really takes that on. And it's really nice. He sort of said, that, you know, I don't think I would have thought of those things if it wasn't for your experience and knowing you. So I think it's easy to to not even realise. And you don't have to know everyone's personal life, but I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, little things are big does. things. It does. And I think the other thing as well I'd add on to that is if you're in a position, you know, with being a teacher or being a caregiver or being something like that as well, if you think something's wrong, call, make the call. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think even for yourself, and I, I hate to say it, put your own example into this but if somebody suspected something and child services came to your house to investigate you having to go through that would be an awful thing but they're not going to find anything and that doesn't you know go to say anything it's if there's nothing there there's nothing there that's okay mm-hmm. uh, something's raised there's nothing there that's fine you know the it's an anonymous tip it's an anonymous thing that you can go to child services and i think it's important to use the services that we have they are stretched but you know, if you're if you're a caregiver or a teacher or something and you see something that's cause for concern, somebody called me a few years ago and said, I don't know what to do. This kid, she worked in a disability school. This kid has come to school three or four days in a row with the same clothes on. He's really unkept. He's a very unhygienic. He smells. And I was like, well, he's not the smelly kid. He's He's got an intellectual disability. What's going on at home? This sounds like neglect. Like, and she just said, I don't know what to do. But you call call the principal in, mm-hmm. call the authorities. And I, I know that people don't want to get people in trouble, but if you suspect something's going on, you're not the investigator. It's not for you to figure it out. You just yeah, raise they, the flag. They need an advocate. They need someone to raise the flag, like you said, to advocate. The amount of times I went to the school counsellor, so child services was never called, ever, that I'm aware of. And... My mum wasn't a bad mum and we were fed, clothed, but if I'm going to the school counsellor and saying I'm scared of my stepdad and he's saying he's going to drag me out of my boyfriend's house, even when I'm in year 11 or 12, there was no, nothing ever came from that. And I think, you know, that could have really made a difference. Definitely. Threat of physical violence against a child, you know, you are a child at that age. You're in school. So I think advocate for the people around you. And if it means you have to call somebody, you call somebody, but if there's nothing there, they can't get convicted or have their children taken away for nothing. And I think that's, that's also something important to say, because I think we feel the same way, even about calling the police. Like you said, you called the local, the police station number. So for, I guess, listeners in other countries um, (laughs) or States. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yep. We've got our state police services and the state police services will have, what would you call them, just locations across different areas and different states. Usually most suburbs will have Mm -hmm. um, a a police station within it or a police station nearby. So we've got a Mm -hmm. lot, but they all report into the same state service. So you can call triple zero, which is our emergency telephone number, but you'll you'll always get put through, I guess, to the people close by. But at the same time, for non-emergencies, you can call the local office and have a chat yes. and talk about yeah. things. I called the local office a few times. One of them, I, my parents used to live, like well, they still do, 
the back of their properties or wetlands, there's a lot of animal activity out there. And sometimes the sound of like a rabbit sadly being killed by like a fox or something sounds like a woman screaming. Sorry. Oh. It's awful. Um, yeah. And you can hear it. It's, it's, you know, so I remember calling them then and I was like, I can't tell what, what it was, but it could have been. So that was a situation. I mean, that should have been a triple zero call as well, but I think we've got this innate instinct where we don't want to call it an Waste emergency. their time? Yeah. yeah. You yeah. Don't, you're like, is it an emergency? <laughs> Sorry. But from what I'm aware of, I've got a couple of friends at work for triple zero. At least it's, it's on record. It's recorded. It's a third part. It's like they're at a call center and they've got a duty of care and they need this, a certain amount of details. They need your location. If I had have known that back then, then I don't think that I would have been transferred through to someone that he knew and that would doubt me and not take me seriously. Um, It would have been recorded. It would have been a different outcome. Definitely. So I think in that as well, it is important to just trust your gut, trust your instincts. And if you need to call your emergency services, call them. You know, I even once thought I was seeing somebody steal a car and I called triple zero and I I was whispering. I was so far away. It was funny. I don't know why. I was was like to the lady on the phone. I was like, I don't know why I'm whispering. He can't hear me. (laughs) And too bad if he can. (laughs) Like he's busy. (laughs) <laughs> the true crime in me really came out because he'd left the scene <laughs> and he, he'd gone on foot down the road and the police all rocked up. And I was like, he's looks like this and he's gone on foot North. And I was like, who says that? Oh, wow. Yeah. Not me. You're, you're really good <laughs> on foot. I couldn't believe it. But anyway, yeah. um, it wasn't a theft. He was trying to get into his own car. Oh, um, <laughs> Still, but still. <laughs> the police officer that attended that scene, there were six cop cars that came straight away. It was in the middle of the city. Um, wow. But the police officer called me and said, I just want to let you know it and told me the situation. And then he just said, I just don't want this to ever discourage you. I want to say thank you for calling. What you did was absolutely incredible. And he stayed on the phone with me for like five minutes oh. and and really reinforced that. And I think that's something we all need need to hear sometimes is it's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to call something, you know, in, if you're not sure if it's an emergency, they're the trained professionals, they'll figure it out, you know? So cool. If you, when in doubt, call. Yep. And even if you offer, if you're a school teacher and you, you suspect a child is living in a volatile situation, even just offering to be a safe person that they can talk to, you know, I don't have to tell anyone straight away, but you can talk to me. I'm not going to tell anyone and I'm a safe, you know, that would have been really, really helpful for me, I think. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know what they're allowed to do or what you're allowed to do as a teacher, but I think that that would have been helpful for me. Definitely. I've got one teacher that I'll never forget. Her name was Miss Young, Janie Young. She did pass away. She knew what, when my sexual assault happened, she was told she was my English teacher at the time. And we had this not open, open dialogue about it. Um, She gave me a lot of width to mess up and be a bit naughty, but she also changed a lot of my assignments. So we had to do essays and stuff like that. So she let me write a diary, I guess, about what I was feeling and what 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 was going on instead of having to read the book and do an essay. Um, And she graded that and I got marks for that and I went through high school. And I think in that moment, she really saved me as well. A lot of the teachers in that time who were wonderful were so, so, so supportive 
Um, and I remember I, I didn't get the email that her, that she'd passed or that I could go to her funeral. And that's one of the things that hits me the most because she's probably one of the biggest people and pivotal people in my life. And is one of the reasons that I think I'm myself here today is because she gave me that time and space when I was going through all of that trauma. And I bet she, she probably doesn't even realize, didn't realize how much of an effect she had on you. And imagine if you didn't have that teacher after your um, assault, if it was a different teacher that wasn't as kind and compassionate and caring, even if they weren't directly speaking to you about it, um, she obviously had an understanding and meant to be. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it just goes to show exactly what you've said. It doesn't take much. Thank you for coming on. You also have started an incredible podcast. Thank you. Do you mind telling the listeners a little bit about what, what your podcast is? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I started a podcast called The Interview um, because I interview guests and I do um, similar to you. Well, I interview people that are anyone, anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter what you do. You don't have to be doing something incredibly impressive. I just want to talk to anyone that will have a conversation with me. I love to divulge into childhood and um you know, the hardest thing I've ever been through. And just, I like to have deep conversations and, and light conversations, but, um, so I've done a bit of that. And then I've also, um, told a bit of my domestic violence story in a part one and part two, I plan on, um, possibly discussing my dad's passing and other experiences, but also, um, I'm speaking with someone in a few weeks about birth trauma, just, you know, being a platform for all different conversations and, um, you know, just getting people to open up and feel seen and heard in all areas. And I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, I can talk underwater. So it's, it's the perfect, the perfect job. You probably agree. So can I. Um, (laughs) So I love talking to new people and I used to work in retail and teach dancing. And now that I'm at home with my kids, it's like, I don't get to meet as many new people but sometimes I'll be having a conversation with someone that I've known for years and I I learn something new about them because we're sitting down and we're talking about them and I'm asking them questions I've never asked them before and it's really nice and I find other people that listen connect with some you know my my friend from school they're like wow I'm so much like her and I never knew that about her yeah it's been really fun yeah I think it's incredible and even um on your stories today talking about um nausea in pregnancy. Mm, um, mm-hmm. and that, that was really interesting. Even for me, I've always been somebody that was quite sick. I've never had a baby, but I'm like, I've always paid myself as that happening to me. Oh, um, oh no. <laughs> but listening to these stories and these women, I mean, it just makes you kind of want to scream to the world and go, women are amazing. The things oh. that their bodies endure. Yeah. They're just nothing, no one or nothing compares to a woman, honestly. Like we just, (laughs) the things we do and then you just get on with it. It's absolutely incredible. I actually interviewed a friend of mine. She's just had triplets and that um, interview went crazy because, I mean, how often do you talk to somebody in depth about their pregnancy with triplets? Like I'm so grateful she said yes. Um, It was amazing. And, yeah, she's incredible. Just popped out three babies and, yeah, it's an absolute miracle. So if anybody wants to go and listen to your podcast or get in contact with you, how can they do that? 
Uh, you can follow me at The Interview Podcast on Instagram, um, The Interview on Facebook. Send me a DM, um, Tess Griffin on Instagram as well. Yeah, I'd love to have a chat and, yeah, follow me. <laughs> I love that. Let's chat about everything. <laughs> I really do love that. Um, I do. I think you've already done it a little bit, but I do ask at the end of each episode if you had one piece of advice that you could give somebody, especially, I guess, when they're going through the, the thick of, of what you were going through, what would your advice be? It's interesting that we were just talking about pregnancy, but... I've found I like to only take advice that you've asked for. So if someone's give you know sort of people just give you advice and or give you their experience or shove their experience onto you and try and relate, I think we're all guilty of that. Um, you can you can listen to that and take that on, but not take on their advice. And you know if you ask somebody, hey, I've been through this and I want to know how you got through it, or what do you think I should do when you're asking someone a question then take the advice, but don't take advice that you didn't ask for. I think um, that would be my advice. And and reach out to people that you trust or if you don't feel comfortable talking to somebody, maybe just um, if you can keep busy, if you can join a dance class, if you can um, catch up with a friend and go to a movie, I think just being away from a situation that's hard as much as possible, that's what helped me. And yeah. I really was able to build my own life separate from all of that building confidence in my own, you know, friendships and relationships and work relationships. I think that was really helpful. That's wonderful. And even connecting with a class like that, like there are communities, even CrossFit mm-hmm. is a huge community, you know, yeah, so F45 and things like that. Yeah. yeah. You never know where you're going to, to meet somebody that's going to be a massive support or even a group of people that are going to give you something that you need. So definitely. Um, thank you so much, Tess. It's been so wonderful having this chat with you. So for now, this is Reclaim Me signing out. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.